One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the show. I have uh, a new first on today. Richard Norton is a formerly a creative director of over a decade who recently decided to quit, pack it all in and pursue the counterintuitive path of becoming a leader and freelancer uh, with a specialist towards creativity and AI in particular. And least I not forget, it's Richard's birthday today. Come so on. I'll start by saying thank you for coming on on your birthday. Uh, has it been one to remember so far? Oh, well... It is the very fact that I'm sharing a small space. Well, it's, it's actually quite a generous size space with you, Ricky. It's an honour and a pleasure and a privilege to share my birthday with you, to be honest, or a portion of it, should I say. Just prior to coming on, we were talking about some of the previous episodes, and uh, you're one of the first guests I've had on that's actually been a listener as well, which is quite exciting. <laughs> well, I can't speak for your other interviewees. Eh? Yeah. It's all about research, isn't it? Research is everything in this game, but that's not really, because my journey, I like that word, with you, is the fact that I discovered you as a listener, first and foremost, not someone, I must get myself on the Ricky Richards podcast. No, but I, you know, when you reached out, I... I've just had this natural curiosity where I go and dig into what people do in their background and stuff. And as I said to you earlier, I instantly identified you as this is somebody that's a provocateur of culture, not just somebody that follows it, you know, like somebody that's actually trying to put themselves out there and do interesting things and see what the world pushes back at them. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was inevitable. I, I would probably say, um, to kick off, I thought we could start about creative AI, which I know is something that you're um, like interested in and mm-hmm. something that you're pursuing at the moment. And so why are you interested in it? What in particular has drawn your attention to it? What, why should we be paying attention? Okay. Uh, where do we start? Do you want the short, the long, or the mid-answer? You, you go, you go right ahead. I would say, I think there's part of me, before we get into the creative AI aspect as a new technology, a new thing in marketing or advertising, if I think about it in terms of my interest, obviously my background in advertising is a writer per se. That's where, if I had a skill, it was probably writing ideas, etc. But I've always thought, long before that, I've always kind of realised, only recently I've kind of understood that I've always been quite interested to be the first person to have, I'm one of these early adopter types. Even to the point, uh, look, I'm looking across there in the the other room, there's a nice little Fender Telecaster, Mexico, um, Mexican May guitar. I can remember in my musical days, being the, I remember the, the the excitement that was brought into the studio when I brought the first like wireless guitar mic in Swindon. That's where I come from. You see, <laughs> I was the man who had the first, and people would look at me as if I was some sort of guitar god. What of course do you find as an early doctor of new technology very often is that the new technology promises much, but sometimes underdelivered. It was always a magnificent tool for uh, rehearsing. And sound checks, but when you know when the 
when, when crunch the, time came. When the dry ice descended, <laughs> the wireless remote always went wrong to the point you always have to have your, your cables go back to the hardware, go analogue. Um, so I've always kind of been interested in getting... It's that sort of excitement. It's even to the point where... I suppose I was away for a time for for a few years. I went to Australia for a certain number of years and worked, which was kind of a, a really good education because it, it gave me an, an exposure to television advertising and script writing. Um, and I came back and didn't really know what I was going to do when I came back to the UK. And it was just at the sort of explosion of social media, not only as a social front, but as an advertising kind of marketing tool. And it kind of appealed to me and it was kind of fresh. And it was, again, it's the same principle. It was new. It was shiny. I want to know. It's just a bit of a sort of is that a magpie <laughs> thing going on. So I've always had that. When it comes to the creative AI, I guess, um, my actual story of how I came to it, if you just said three years ago, do you ever considered artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence or autonomous intelligence, what you want to call it? Did you ever see it being part of your world? If I'd ever read something about it or heard something about it, I hadn't registered until a day in our actual agency when we were put up to do a head-to-head test with a company called Posado, I think an American company, who do uh, kind of copy uh, email subject lines testing and stuff when they took us on in a, for one of our particular clients at the time in a head-to-head competition. And suddenly it was us versus machine and your natural course human instinct is to think oh my god we can't we can't lose to a machine how can't be possible they're going to take the jobs which is that classic thing isn't it um and so you know as a writer let's think about the task of writing subject lines traditionally when you would do that how many would you sit down you might spend i don't know an hour I don't know, I'm playing it for all the, all the email subject writers listening to your podcast. Oh my God, it's been four days writing my, crafting my subject <laughs> lines. I don't know if that's true. You might think, well, yeah, that's quite good one. It? And it's all, you're guessing, isn't it? But it's a sort of gut feel of all the years of experience. That feels like a good subject line. Oh, that one rhymes. Oh, that might quit. But you don't know, do you, right? That's why you test and test and test. And then you find a good one and then you test and test and test. Suddenly replicates this machine. And so what was a what would have been a fairly prosaic exercise in writing some subject lines became suddenly a sort of a battle royale with a machine. Um, and I can never forget the actual time. And I, I think I was seedy at that point rather than senior writer. The amount of effort we put in to defeat the machine. And it just became like a volume thing to work out what we did. So we did it. And it was probably three years ago, so maybe the the machine's intuitive nature of working out what would work, we beat it by something like 0.1% of 0.1%, right? We win for humans and all that, but it immediately opened my eyes to think, wow, blimey, that took so much effort. You wouldn't, you wouldn't naturally do that. We had yeah. the opportunity to do it. There's something coming here. There's something interesting. There's something fascinating. I need to start... So did you get an insight then in, as to how they'd done what they'd done? No. No. It was very much... It's, we, we, this is not the first time today in our conference we've talked about curtains, isn't it? Yes. You know, it was what goes on behind the curtain goes on behind the curtain. It was very much like, we're not going to tell you how we do it, but we'll see how it goes. And then, because the result was fairly even, Stephen, and at the time it was quite a, I would say, quite a challenging price that was put in front to do it, right? Probably very different now. Um, they sort of went away and it was like a sort of collective breath from the humans. I hope they don't come back for the sequel. Um, but at that point it made me think, wow, this is something kind of amazing that this exists in the world. I need to 
understand it. And so I've been on a, again, I used to be a journey, a voyage, trying to find out as much as I could. And on a kind of convoluted route. I'm going to jump in, because you just made me think of two things. The, fir- the first one was very, very different subject matter altogether, but it, it, around the whole idea of humans and the fact we can't be beaten in a way. I was having quite a complex debate with, with a friend the other day around the idea of, whether fatalism exists or whether we have will, uh, free will, and he was talk- we were talking about how um, basically the subconscious our, or our subconscious is is almost like a trickery machine to make us believe in ourselves and that we have some kind of significance on a greater scale than maybe is the case. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that humans tend to have this tendency towards not believing that they can be surpassed by a machine. And well, that's where flawed, a flawed. Uh, yeah, well, and that, that that is the whole thing, isn't it? Is that machines, in a way, they don't have that uh, sentimentalism around their own existence, and so they can churn out lots and lots of different, lots of different computations and ways of executing certain things. I can imagine, from a creative standpoint, that there's a, there's a risk there in the idea that you can that you're replacing yourself, and that that's what generates money for us. Is that supposedly it's the human that's doing the creativity mm. why wouldn't the aid why wouldn't the client just have the machine as opposed to the agency or whatever um what do you think to that the whole the whole aspect of kind of putting ourselves at risk which is something that we all think that machines are going to surpass menial tasks that can be created and done easily but there's the whole idea of creativity being surpassed by machines is something which people are a little bit more skeptical about yeah i guess so i mean yeah there's there's <clears throat> there is definitely something uh quite provocative and quite existential to consider obsolescence as oneself although in some ways it's actually quite nice i think you know where i've sort of got to understand it and you know i'm in no way i did i will say to you ricky i did investigate at one point going to uh do a course with um mit in i thought i'm to really get under the skin of this i've got to do coding and all this sort of stuff to, to work i've got to get into the python of of machine learning um, but then when I sort of read the, the, the sort of basic uh, needs of what you, you had to bring to the course, and it had, I think it was about calculus, and when you have to look at what calculus <laughs> is, you know it's probably not for you. Oh, it's something to do with Newton. Anyway, um, I, I suppose, so. I mean, I, the, the, to me, it's a big, it's a very, we've moved very fast in this conversation to get that point, but <laughs> to me, creativity and artificial intelligence call it whatever machines computation creative what is true creativity for a machine is still some way down the line now you know yeah someone like an elon musk might say it's 10 years away somebody might say it's 30 years away it's whatsoever but i think what i've seen enough um from lots of different people who i've kind of had uh, encounters with and, and met and talked to to see that there is a lot of stuff machines in marketing and advertising can do that actually frees time for the people who are creative, the people who do generate the originality, if there's such a thing even, to actually allow them to do more of that. And it's it's almost like creating that, what's the term? Symbiosis between human and machine. I'm going to latch onto your point there because this is something that I've tried to explain in the past, which is if you looked at us as people objectively, we really are... Say we come into the world, we've got our biology, but then by all accounts we're a blank slate. And then we take in our inputs, which is just our surroundings, our upbringing, etc. And that is our source material then to create output, which is what we call creativity. 
And so I've kind of suggested for years that the best way to be creative is to try and make sure that your input material is different from the mass mass populace because it means that you've got different points of reference in order to create interesting Mm -hmm. things. But machines are effectively... You can just input as many data points as as possible. And what I think is interesting about it is, so say, um, let me think, say I was to come up with a new texture for shoes. I might say a, um, I don't know, uh, a, a leopard print trainer, for example. And for some reason, my mind has said that that is a pattern and that is a shoe and therefore those two things can go together. But what I love about the idea of a computer is that it might put two things which are just seemingly completely non-obvious. And there's a whole bunch of processing that goes on in your brain prior to that point that kind of says that these two things are capable of going together that a machine would never have. So it's going to come up with really unusual combinations. And therefore, in the rudimentary version of it, before it becomes truly intelligent, as we've spoke about earlier there will almost be this stage where people will become what I'm starting to coin as a data creator. Basically, somebody that looks through data and identifies really interesting combinations and then uses that to inform what it is they do. And so there will always be that human element. But, um, yeah, I think I'm just trying to reinforce the point that you just tried to make, which is that machines, there is definitely room for them in the creative endeavour. Yeah, and I think exactly what you say, the whole notion of the human mind is like a, filters all the time doesn't it that which does that can't possibly work because that plus that can't do that she doesn't care it will try it oh that's interesting and i think you will get out of it these strange i don't know combinations mutations whatever you want to i mean there are things i've seen out there you can see on certain websites and certain design things even the world of art where what appears to be a very unlikely relationship between two things or three things or four things the intersection becomes something I didn't expect it to do it like that, which is kind of... We were talking earlier, weren't we, about the um, the Go film and the Lisa Doe and all that and the, the strangest of moves and all that sort of thing and then a machine teaching a machine. It's It just takes you into an interesting place where, you know, maybe the human mind can't really go yet. Yeah. I um, Just out of interest, actually, before I move on to the next thing, I was yeah. going to ask, how how do you intend to embrace this? Like, How, how are you looking to implement it into your, your day-to-day? I know that there's some stuff going on behind the scenes. Are you able to talk oh, about scenes. it? Oh, Well, let's see. Let's see where it's at. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I, I basically stumbled at sort of tail end of last year. I was, I was trying to sort of create... I mean, Bristol's a great tech city. Do not get me wrong. It's a brilliant tech city. But I couldn't find any kind of conversations or any interested parties or any groups, networks that were doing this sort of thing. This is AI groups. I mean, there's... There's a couple of sort of world-leading AI companies, but it's AI in the very broadest sense rather than the sort of, uh, what's that term you use, a super niche of advertising <laughs> and marketing. Um, so I basically looked, I thought, well, let's see what there is in London. And in fact, there are actually two quite different meetup groups in London, one by a uh, lady, a woman called um, Luber Elliott, um, which seems to be it's a lot more tech it's a it's a very big group a lot of technologists she's like an art she's like an ai art curator the world's first um tr- but that was always the thing i try to get you can never get in because there's so many people who want to be in it and there's only so many people who can be at the gr- event and then i saw this other thing which was this event called i'll be back with tom mollerton and um alex hobhouse and i just thought i'll get on a train i'll go to that and um 
I did. There's a story about the first event, but we probably there's no time for that tonight. <laughs> um, but I subsequently went, and because it has a whole breadth of different speakers at it, uh, it was kind of fascinating because they come from different sort of angles. It's the agency, the startup, the tech, the sort of uh, almost um, the kind of philosopher. There's 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 pro, there's anti, there's thoughtful, there's kind of like you know very very kind of hard pushing of it. Uh, I. I found it so fascinating, and it was exactly the thing at the right moment. So I thought, okay, I can, I can see this, and I sort of came back exporting it. Have we back to my agency at the time and said, have we thought about we could how we could harness that, and you could do it because there's all sorts of different ways you can obviously adopt creative AI. You can do it as a, as you say, a, a, a mach- machines that do the heavy loading, but equally, can you use it with very big, broad ideas to create something very different, right? Complexity becomes harder because you have to teach a machine for longer and it's more expensive. Um, so I kind of felt over a certain number of months that I wanted to sort of become almost like, oh, it's going to sound like John the Baptist or something, like some <laughs> sort of creative AI evangelist. I, I wanted to create the same kind of conversations, the same networks in the Southwest. A, I wanted to establish, was there one? And B, if there was, are people going to come along? Do they want to talk about it? Because there is, there, to me... It's, it's not. I don't think you're betting your house on it, but there seems to be an inevitability of of artificial intelligence in whatever form becoming part of you know the tools and technology of marketing. It's not going to be something that suddenly disappears and it's there now because of the nature of what it is with computers and processing power. So I've kind of done that, and so where I've now stepped away from being, as you said, I heard the term counterintuitive, and I like that. That felt a little bit. <laughs> that felt a little bit edgy, right? Um, so yeah, I can I can earn a crust doing what I do in terms of advertising, writing, copywriting, that. But more and more, it seems inevitable that more of those ideas will involve some way bringing creative AI into the mix. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I've had conversations. I've met brands, businesses, agencies. Interesting how the responses go. Um, I've exported the album back to the Southwest. We might talk about it later. But I think that it'll only help the more you generate the conversations, the more it becomes the norm. And, and you become the, the, you become the, like you said, you said the, uh, I forgot what, what term you just used. I, the evangelist. The evangelist, yeah. You know, that was far too grand a term there from me. But Well, no, I think you are the catalyst for change in that respect. I mean, it, it takes somebody to start something, oftentimes for things to barrel roll in a certain direction. And I don't mean that you're necessarily going to be the the person that makes the the change across the whole industry, but you might be the glue that holds it all together, you know? And I I think that's uh, talking about events and stuff as well. A bunch of years ago, I I tried to start my own company that was called Phoby, which stood for Full of Bright Ideas. And uh, the company itself got no work at all, but funnily enough, we started doing these things on the side called Phoby Sessions. Yeah. So people would come along, they'd bring their business ideas and we'd come up with ideas for how they could improve and grow. And that got way more traction than the agency did. <laughs> and you, you, you know when things like that happen and there is a real hunger for people to be on the cutting edge and for them to understand this space. And so um, I think that's a, it's a great initiative. And I mean, I, I think, you know, hype curves and all that, go out on hype curve, if you were to plot where... AI is not creative AI, it's just a subset, isn't it? It's probably right at the top, whatever it is, the sort of pinnacle of peak expectations, where it's called. And by the nature of a said uh, hype curve, it must at some point plummet. 
I think it's called the Trough of Disillusion. Is that what it's called, I believe? <laughs> That's where my Bitcoin is right now. The Trough <laughs> yeah, of I Disillusion. I don't feel it. But maybe, maybe it's going to be something that somehow doesn't... I don't, who knows? Do all things have to follow that same? Is there some magical kind of perpetual motion machine or something that make you leap the chasm to, to the... Who knows? Here's a theory that I was keen to get your... Um, your input on and it's a little bit of a deviation from AI but I think it's the idea of computerizing ideas in a way and I was thinking the other day about the whole um, pursuit of for humans to reproduce and the fact that so uh, what's the what's the, uh, what's the guy that did uh, did that stuff on the the island and everything god I forgot the guy's name the guy that kind of said uh, you, you pass your genes on from one guy to the next and so there's this whole belief that... Charles Darwin, you Darwin, mean, right? yes, there yeah. we go. The evolution chap, the evolution Darwin. fellow. Uh, so there's, for years and years and years, there's been this prov- uh, idea that we're going to go away and try and propagate our genes by partnering up with people and having children, and that's, that's, how, that's our kind of... That's the human pursuit. And I wonder now, with the fact that technology's come about, if the human pursuit might evolve into this, this idea of we're going to exist on the computer... And so there's less incentive for us to necessarily have children because um, like past your genes, the whole idea, an idea nowadays has huge capacity to spread, um, you know, as we see by viral ideas all the time. And so the, the idea of maybe having your existence on the internet and that that is the thing that kind of propagates you as a person. Mm-hmm. I think might have, might be what people do in the future as opposed to being so j- driven to have children. And I, I know that's a wild, wild uh, idea. That's, but that's a, that's a, that's very left field. That's an outlier. Yeah. May I say that? Well, because it's sort of, so it's almost, uh, the reason it made me think about it is typically people have children in, say, the uh, early to late 20s, which is kind of a critical time in your human development in terms of your ideas and your work capacity typically like you have this that flourish of where are these because i would just say tech that wouldn't people's propensity of children be different in different societies by like i would imagine in less developed it's younger yes yeah and true probably in the slightly older i would so, have thought so i'm i'm going on uh the kind of female body clock as a as like a, a cap in a way yeah and then you're right, before that it varies. Yeah. But it's almost, I wonder if, so I read an interesting statistic the other day that uh, statistically on average, there's more children you have, the lower the, this is this gets into tricky territory, but the lower the IQ typically of the, the further children, and very, very minor, but the idea is is that the more children that come into the family, the less energy can be expended on... Uh, that that subsequent child, right. like, the, the time among parents gets split, um, and so basically, aside from that as a, as, a, as a question all to itself, there's the fact that people dedicate a huge amount of time to their children, and so then assuming there's people out there that are trying to push the bounds of stuff, and you've only got so many years to live, mm-hmm. I wonder if those years of having children might stop some people from reaching their full capacity as an individual and people that choose not to do that and to propel themselves on in, in an intellectual pursuit in the internet 
that that might be their way of that might be a future way of propagating genes if that makes sense okay like so the, so this i was in amsterdam the other day and i started chatting to some random guy and it turned out that we both knew some we both knew kevin rose who's this internet uh well, he's not an internet guy he's i question how random this person would have been to have yeah well this 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 is this is what made me think of it really is that Here's two guys that have, have never met each other before from different parts of the world. Yeah. And we happen to get into a conversation and we happen to share an interest in this one guy. Yeah. And his ideas have influenced our ideas. Okay. And I was like, there's something really, I mean, that's what the internet is, isn't it? It's like this melting pot of ideas. Mm. And I, it made me think, you know, it doesn't matter what that individual does. His legacy, in a way, lives on in everyone. Mm-hmm. And um, I wondered if that was, whilst it's not a progression in evolution at the moment, when it comes to AI and the idea that potentially we may be surpassed by m- machines, that actually maybe that is the next step, that, that our ideas transferring over to machines is that kind of one step closer to the whole idea of on that uh, evolutionary chart from being animals to humans, what's next? Is it technology? But then, well, that wouldn't be a technically, would that be a, wouldn't be a species transfer? Um, One of the things you were saying earlier... Sorry, that was a a long tangent. Yeah, no, it's fine. I'm totally with you. Um, One of the things, I suppose, at the same time I was saying about the AI journey, the discourage, I talked about Posada earlier, it was about the same time I read the... Uh, Yuval Harari book, Sapiens. Yeah. I bet you've read that, haven't you? I have, yes. Yeah, of course you have, because you do a lot of thinking, Ricky. I can tell. <laughs> I can tell, right? It's a fascinating book. Oh, that. it's an amazing book. He's got a new one coming out, hasn't he? And um, then he brought that second one out, didn't he, which is all about Deus Homo. Yeah. And um, I went to a talk. I went to a talk he gave in Bristol. At this, they had like a fe- they have a festival of ideas, which kind of runs all year, and they just get when someone's got a publication or a book or something, they they get them along and they do a talk. And he came because he was the hot ticket in town, and he got onto the subject of you know the 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 whole thing about humans subservience machines. The, machines are bad news for humans was basically his headline. But I found his intellect so... I remember this. His intellect was so intimidating, but after a few, I got up and left. I couldn't deal with the complexity of his arguments. Yeah. <laughs> I just left me seat. But I was saying that to you earlier about Nick Bostrom. Yeah. It seems it, like the AI, the cutting edge of AI stuff is, is almost too dense to get your head around. If he had his film hair with so enough information after about 25 minutes, I don't, I don't really, I can't, there's no more room. It was, it was like a shopping bag, my head. Yeah. There's no more room for me to pack any more goods in it. I'm going to leave now, happily, happily replete it's, it's with fu- dystopian thoughts. It's, it's funny that, I'm, years ago, I remember, well, I, I, I decided I was going to write a book when I was like 22, it was a bad idea, obviously, but the subject matter that at I, that point in time, <laughs> I, as opposed to all twenty-five well, I was, years later, what would you, I was like, I, the thing that I was thinking at the time was, I wonder what um, makes certain people memorable, and so it it seemed like when you Google search the, the people of the past, the people that had legacy, yeah, tended to be either notable political people, yeah, or inventors slash scientists yeah and um i really like and then i realized that oh you know there'll be people now that live today 
that are those people in the future. And, and then that kind of started to drive who I was interested in because I, I was like, I, even if I don't play a part in the grand narrative of history... I, I think you might, though, Ricky. Fing, well, fingers crossed. I feel that <laughs> so you're interested in, in having that legacy, I can tell. Well, it's interesting because uh, uh, I asked Rory Sutherland this question, actually, the whole idea around... Because he struck me, again, as another individual that's, like, really into learning stuff. But then he's also quite hedonistic. He likes to indulge and do... Like things, and 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 I'm similar. Epicurean, that's what I would say. Isn't he a lover of the finer things? Exactly. In yeah. Life, I should think. And so, I'll, oftentimes, and this is a question I ask you: like, how do how do you de- decide what to do? Because I always think, assuming that, like, do you want to try and plough towards a grander narrative that's for everybody else other than yourself, or do you indulge in what you like to do? regardless of whether that has much implication on the grand scheme of things. Okay. Uh, I definitely, I'm very keen on anonymity uh, after my demise. I'd like to be forgotten by everyone. Really? See, that's I've interesting. Got, I've got no desire. Well, it's not, I suppose you say history. What's interesting, I think, about modern the modern world and the data and that everyone's got social profiles and, and this visibility, I think it'd be interesting... On the assumption that social media remains a thing, or social remains a thing for years to come, and obviously people will get older, people will die, and their social legacy will still exist. More of it, I mean, there are people out there. the social graveyard. Yeah, so therefore that will become your ability to understand your antecedents, your predecessors, um, will become much easier, won't it? Because, you know, I'd have no idea who my relatives are from 500 years ago. I've got the foggiest, right? Suppose I could go and look in some dusty archive couldn't I have wanted to but yeah. I think about it and then I go can't be bothered really but, but then I also think that there's so much stuff being produced that you really need if you you really need to <clears throat> concentrate on creating things that that kind of surpass just what everyday creation is so just you know re- really pushing towards things that uh, require a lot of effort that there's an an interesting thing I think at the moment with young creatives coming into the industry in that because everyone's so obsessed with social media and because everyone's wrapped up in these like these bubbles, so to say, if if you can devoid yourself of that in a way and just focus your energy on certain pursuits, I say it's a little bit like a snowball down a hill. It's very easy to actually build uh, momentum because there's so many other things that are kind of drawing people's attention away from just doing the work, if mm. that makes sense. Um, and yeah, so I think that whilst I completely get your point is when you pass away, it doesn't matter if you, if you leave anything or, or that's, that's a, whether you care about legacy or not. I'm not even thinking of pass away, I'm just thinking of disappearing. Yeah. Stop. Long before my demise, just Puffy was there and now he's gone. Like a, like a Houdini. Yeah, like a, a, one of one of my heroes growing up was George Lois, and I love he's got ah, this, George, George, yeah, Lewis, George, yeah. <laughs> George, and he's got this amazing flat in New York where he's collected all these interesting artifacts from history that are long forgotten, most of them. And I love the idea that one day when he passes away in his apartment, that's filled with the stuff that interested him. And I kind of feel like I'd like to do the same. That's very nice. I. I... Again, I'm always one. I'm a, I'm a meticulous researcher. Yeah. If I meet someone, I've, I read an interview of you. Oh, really? Uh, there was a little chuckle that made me laugh. Um, a little something you said made me chuckle, shall I say, 
which was about the fact that you'd been heavily influenced by um, white bald men. Yes. And Seth Godin. Seth Godin. George Lewis. Jack Fresco. All the ones, but no Duncan Goodhue, I saw mentioned yeah. at all. No, no Duncan Goodhue. Although... Or the old Meadowlark Lemon I, from I, the Harlem Globetrotters. I, w- I wanted to put Steve Jobs in there, but I wasn't sure if that was... Oh, that's yeah, just, again, that's, that's, a, that's a bit of a dark one because it wasn't such a uh, intended haircut, I don't think. Yes, I said. So going back, I, like your question you pointed out earlier, you were saying about um, about what you like to do. I was thinking about that from a, a advertising perspective because I said one of the things that's quite interesting in my mindset and how it shifted is... When I was in agency world as a CD and you sit on a board and you have decisions and clients, the opportunity to pitch for certain clients comes in or you win certain clients. And there are some, no disrespect to those clients out there, there are some that you sometimes think, you know, glowing brand mission statement or whatever, you think, oh, I just don't know if I feel comfortable working with this brand. And I suppose one of the great liberations of not doing that now is this, I've got this kind of free will, as it were, to decide... Yeah, I will do that. I won't do that. I mean, it all depends how it all goes, doesn't it? But you know what I mean? You have far more choice. And that straight away has, has, has given me a, a much greater sense of sort of liberation. And ultimately, a very key word, I think, in the human experience, a sense of happiness that perhaps I haven't felt for a very long time. And the very fact that I think also, I'm not saying this as a as a, some sort of revolutionary creed occur to all your listeners to start all becoming self-employed or getting into creative AI or anything like that, but I I found it quite um, quite powerful and quite uh, fascinating that how much more energy and enthusiasm you have by simply networking with a much broader a word used at much more diverse group suddenly. Simply because that's the way that business goes when you're not in a bubble of an agency, and that's that's been you know. And I think it's like you said earlier about how you can stand out from the crowd in terms of your creativity. And I think it's absolutely true. You, if you try and have very different experiences to everybody else, ultimately nothing's original, is it? Right? It all comes from real experiences, things that happen to you, whether it's traumatic or what. They all it all sort of sums up wells that flies around your brain. I think that whole thing about taking yourself to, you know, places, meeting people, having conversations, it's just that sort of thing. People who are kind of shy and they don't want to say, no, talk to anybody because you never know where it might take you. And some tiny little spark or conversation that just goes in your brain one day might be a seed that, you know, creates that legacy, this legacy that you desire. (laughs) I feel bad because I'm not sure. I hope I don't desire a legacy, if that makes sense. I think I just like to think that you go through life and you can cause a bit of a... I'm going to crowdfund. I'm giant yeah. brass bronze statue or something. <laughs> right? Yeah, we'll do it. Well, my, the name of my <laughs> podcast is already narcissistic enough, so we may as well continue the trend. Might as well. It seems inevitable. I was going to say one of our prior guests, uh, Kirk Truman. It was actually his bit of advice at the end of the episode. He said, "You know, for anyone listening to this, if you're creative, self-employment is just you know that was his thing in a way." I was like, "What what thing would you encourage people to do to live a better life?" become self-employed and interestingly like another little tangent going back to the ai debate another guy that i was massively inspired by was jack fresco who was this guy that came up with this idea of the venus project which is kind of communist in its essence it's a um, resource-based economy but he was always a he was a futurist and his whole thing was like once technology can do all the things that we humans do 
we're then free to pursue our own endeavors and explorations. Yeah. And um, I think to some degree with the whole free people moving towards freelance and becoming free and realizing that more and more things can be taken up by machines, it's opening up the debate for things like um, uh, minimum what's that where people get distributed wealth universal income universal basic income and i think that those things are going to become more and more prevalent as as this transition starts to take hold well they the whole thing of sort of universal basic income is very much now it's in the mainstream isn't it it's not some sort of what may have been five years ago out there as again a sort of outlying idea of the crazies I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of crazy ideas that have become mainstream in maybe the last three years, but that to me seems like actually one of those things that is worthy of a an investigation. So, yeah, let's see where it goes. Do you think that now that people are becoming uh, more and more freelance, that to some degree, uh, this this is obviously not the case now, but do you think clients are going to start to become a little bit more obsolete? And, and what I mean by this is. When create, now that creative people have access to technology that allows them to distribute ideas and there's a market for people that are interested in consuming things that creative people create, yeah. is there going to be less of a need for cr- clients to pay creatives in order to create stuff and people are just going to create the things and people are going to consume it? Don't admit, it's fascinating. I mean, you think of all the technology, the tools, that have, the word that gets banded around, isn't it, the sort of jargony word? democratization of creative tools in the same way that you know ladies and gentlemen i'm holding up my phone um that becomes your like life support machine but there's so many things that you can do on it that are creative that you can probably do that will do a job so to a certain extent oh here we go anybody can be a creative can't they there's no there's no you know it's not oh i'm a creative you're not a creative. anybody's got that capability but i think what's the famous term um, the rule it's the it always comes into play because it's just one of those things um sturgeon's sturgeon's is it sturgeon's rule or sturgeon's law it goes on oh, you know i, n- such I a know thing? what i know what this is but i don't know what it is uh, i've heard it before but unless you explained it to me St- I so uh, i think a guy the guy was called theodore sturgeon he was a sci-fi writer of fiction he may have written a few twilight um zone episodes he may even have done a bit of scripting on star trek Trekkies, please don't write to Ricky with all your these <laughs> Please, please don't, because I won't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but um, he maybe in some quote, because he was quite well, he was quite famous, American dude. He made some quote about 90% of sci fi being crap or something. That was his term. And he said, well, and that's because 90% of everything is crap, right? And then that became Theodore's. It's how these things get sort of mutated. Yeah. It became Theodore's, Sturgeon's law rule, quote with Will, is 90% of everything is crap. Yeah. <laughs> and actually. When you think about it, if everyone's, it's probably, I'd say personally, it's more sort of about ninety-five percent of ourselves. Yeah. If you actually think about it, if I really apply the rule of measure to the things that I have a real passion or interest in, probably music, yeah, probably literature, yeah, probably advertising. Five percent of advertising is outstandingly good advertising. I suppose, of course, what are the parameters? What you mean? good to be do we mean effective or sort of like emotionally kind of st- who knows what that is but yeah. um i think that's an interesting point yeah the, the point is where where does where does creativity stop so if if everyone could do it there's no price to anything but actually there's still always going to be 
I don't want to call them craftspeople, but there are people who can do it better. There's always someone who's better than somebody else, isn't there? Well, and ultimately, that I mean, at the end of the day, advertising people are advertising people to get paid because they're the best people to deliver the solutions to the problems. Yeah. Well, you would assume. But at the same time, I think we... Well... It was fascinating, but then that's why the whole thing, when you suddenly became, everything became crowdsourced. Yeah. As if that then became the solution. Because, you know, you could say there are certain things, just because you ask a crowd, and I know the science of wisdoms of crowd and all that, you get a better answer. Actually, crowds, in many facets of life, don't actually come up with the right answers at all, do they? In fact, most people make very rational decisions about most things yeah and we've seen that with vast repercussions not wanting to make this a political broadcast Ricky, yes but the uh, brexit vote all sorts of things you say well there's no logical way why that you know yeah. but then you might get someone who did vote that way would say well actually it is the very sense do you know what i mean so of course, yeah it becomes a complicated it certainly does and i think just to expand on that a little bit i wrote a post recently about what i see are the kind of two areas there's almost that I, I call them the cultural provocateurs and the craftspeople, the people that are, are almost responding to uh, what's going on in the now and, and they're kind of creating these giant splashes in the ocean and it's like, boof, and then there's people that kind of put time and effort and like a long chunk of thinking into something with no guarantee that it's ever going to pay off and then sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Who would be a who would who would be a splash maker? A splash maker would be a um, well, certainly a well. I won't say Donald Trump. Uh, a splash maker, a, cult, a real strong cultural provocateur. Uh, I think you just did, uh, Ricky. I, think I did. did. I, I was thinking of I was thinking of people like uh, when Charles Archie did the sensationalist stuff. So oh. the, the Tracy Emin's a good one. Uh, Mr. Bingo, the illustrator. Yeah. So people that kind of. I think all stand-up comedians are, are like a, a perfect example of a cultural provocateur. The people that kind of err on the side of inappropriateness, but they kind of test the waters with people. And by inappropriate, I might just mean against the flow of of public opinion. So they are the the people that. Um, what was the word I used earlier for yourself? Like somebody that kind of goes provocateur. I think a, I heard a, a provocateur, but around. also. Uh, counterintuitive in a yeah. way like people that kind of are prepared to um prepared to question norms and suggest alternative ways of doing things that people just take for granted and then there's the people the crafts people i think of people like paul rand and Dieter rams and uh, people that kind of have a philosophy and mm-hmm. live and die by it and some people love their philosophy and other people think it's a load of crap and and but they're they're kind of set in their ways to some degree to some degree quite inflexible but there's some merit to them as well because they think about things maybe on a on a different different plane yeah um like sagmeister stefan sagmeister i would he's say a bit of both is he I would, he's quite provocative i yet. would 100 percent say he's a provocateur okay yeah see it's funny when people throw names at me i think i can kind of bucket them in a way yeah is there only two buckets at the moment okay it's it's it's, it's a it's a working philosophy fair dude i must <laughs> admit you say about that when you talk about i love i love when people talk about these people who do have a very defined oh i'll throw another one then so take a carson yeah which bucket does he fly into 
Yeah, he's a, yeah, he is. That's a very very good one. Because I'd say he falls sort of. He has a very defined yeah. technique, and yet his technique is something that's like, whoa, what's that? Well, I think you would probably say he was a cultural provocateur to begin with, and then has almost uh, realised that he could turn it into his style, and he's kind of become more of a uh, craftsperson, philosopher philosophy type person towards t- as he's gone on but what's interesting is that say with david carson so for people that don't know david carson was a super disruptive graphic designer wasn't he well but, i could never read any it couldn't make a sense well, of it as the, a writer the, ho- the, the whole the whole thing was that he didn't have a design background and so he was doing things completely against the rule of tradition and in doing so abstract you could argue like a jackson pollock with letters yes. and typography and in doing so, he became extremely iconic and well-known because his stuff was so disruptive. And it was almost... He was definitely a cultural provocateur, but his provocation became a philosophy in its own right, if that makes sense. But he himself has never continued to evolve mm. in that sense. It's like that was his stake in the ground. But, yeah, no, I think... Um, I think I fall between those two buckets. Yeah? Not in a good way. No? Just in between two buckets. I love that talk. As someone who has a very defined notion of what they stand for, why they do that really... I feel quite envious about that because that's just so not what I am. But I always think about me as a creative and the things I've done. Oh, there's some interesting points we get onto there. Um... I, I, I just think, well, I, you can, I don't know you can ever be provocative enough. But, you know, I think you find an experience of being in whatever agency you're in. I'm sure they're very progressive, daring, bold, amazing agencies, of which I've got no knowledge of ever been in, who are willing to take those amazing risks and do things that do seem almost, the, you know, I suppose <clears throat> the sort of classic cliche of, of when I was a younger man would have been sort of the Benetton stuff, wasn't it? That was always famous as like just advertising to create offence for the sake of offence. But it created noise, didn't it? Well, yeah, that is the that is the. Um, so the extremities on both sides are in are again they're, they're almost I don't want to say no go territories because they obviously people go there, but they're the, they're the things where all of a sudden you start to stray into weird ground. So obviously the extreme of cultural provocateurness is to be a sensationalist and just to do stuff purely for uh, extreme value, but then oftentimes the way that manifests itself in the media is really quite gruesome stuff or really, really highly provocatively sexual stuff mm. or that's just one example. Sounds great. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. This is it's the kind of dystopian future type type stuff. And then on the other side it's you can just kind of get lost in the crowd of of esotericness and never really make any kind of significant it didn't in the world, in in a way, but potentially. But then also, so I think, interestingly, you've just made me kind of think about it. All of those people that we've mentioned have had to straddle somewhere in between to even for, for them to be even be on our radar. Mm-hmm. You know, like they they would have had to have become known, but then also have some kind of philosophy that's that people have latched onto. I think like, like <clears throat> my experience. My destiny is one of the great crass people of copy. Yeah. Was forever ruined by the fact my first boss famous is to be so that probably still reverberates through the ears of every department I've ever worked in or ever managed. When he famously said to me, he said, Norton, if it's eighty percent there, that'll do because the rest the others they'll never notice the other twenty. <laughs> 
And that's been something I have slavishly. Oh, because you're like, you're young and you just like a sponge. You t- okay, if it's 80% there, that'll do it. And I do, you know, we've all worked with people who are the perfectionist perfectionist, right? I find them infuriating. They're brilliant, but oh man, can we just get on to the next? I'm so impatient. Can we do the next thing? No, I've still got some, there's still something to do. No, honestly, no one's going to notice that. Yeah. It's just, and I, you know, part of me hankers to be like that, but no, I'll never ever attain it yeah. in the time I've got left. Well, if you've ever read, um, oh God, I want to say it's Atlas Shrugged, but I think it might be another one, Anne Rand's novels, because she always flirted with that idea that the, the, basically the perfectionist versus the the person that kind of... Sloppiest? I the sloppiest, <laughs> yeah. The person that's highly productive but just doesn't quite go the extra mile. Uh, on the subject of moving on, um, what's an area of life that um, you feel could be disrupted well, I, I threw this question at you before. I'm not sure if you managed to think Yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- straight away, the first thing that, that I thought about, if you wanted to do something, and, and again, I think about, it's it's good disruption we're talking, aren't we? Not yeah, bad yeah. disruption. Yeah. Um, just, I, th- I think back to when I was a young person. I don't know what the demographics of your audience is, Ricky. I'm <laughs> sure you have it actually down uh, on a massive spreadsheet somewhere. No, no. Right? But... Uh, to me, the most obvious thing in the whole of society, certainly in, let's say, this country, for example, to me, is it's, I, it baffles me when anybody ever mentions anything about it. It vexes, makes my blood boil, right? Because it just seems so wrong and so unjust, and that is like student debt and university being a thing that just encumbers you with this humongous... Debt. And I know we can talk about if debt's real and you've, we can go, you vol Harari, about intersubjective myths, what's money, etc. But to me, the notion of like, you're going to contribute far more to society by being educated, and therefore the sub- subsequent governments have sort of said, well, actually, therefore you should be paying for that. When actually, it's, there's enough money to, to put it very, let's take a sort of uh, uh, an advertising idea of making it simple. There's enough money slopping around society to be able to educate people without them having to have this thing on their back to me. And it baffles me why nobody has thought about taking on the university system and doing it in a way, however that disrupted, whether it's like, you know, through through the use of, you know, the very clever use of technology to make it an accessible thing that doesn't encumber you with this, this terrible debt. I massively agree, and I just... Why haven't they? Why has not somebody come forward to, to do it? I, I, so, do you know where we can learn a lot of lessons from this, actually, I feel, is is uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? Well, not I've heard about your Bitcoin. I know, it's, 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 uh, of course, I invested in... It's alt- in the doldrums. I invested in altcoins, uh, which, who knows? No, what's, prob- the most esoteric, I'm gonna, what's the most esoteric coin you've got? Blimp? Oh, do, do you know what? Flub. I, I, uh, I was of certainly of. Ne- sock. I, I didn't do my research. I did the smart move of speaking to somebody that did. And when I say smart, probably a terrible move. But uh, I actually had a fantastic guy called Jack DeRose on the podcast. Who, he was your man. He, he was Ethereum, wasn't he? Yes. And he, but he's been Ethereum from many, many, many years ago. That guy, he's a fascinating chap. And uh, he's. But what was good about his what he was saying was that you know 
they could have, for example, floated a coin and never did because they appreciated that it's a shady territory at the moment. And so they've held back until what they believe is the market's in the right position. Anyway, um, the point I was trying to make is that with education, the whole premise of it is that we hold value in the fact that a university degree holds some weight. And there's a similar premise in money in that basically we, we all agree that it's worth what it's worth. And then there comes Bitcoin and, and altcoins and says, we're going to bring something that has equal value to money. And as long as everyone buys into it, so, so it does. And so I think a similar thing could be done with education quite easily, whereby as long as you could identify some really, really key prominent figureheads in the world of business and, and industry, that they all agreed bought into this organisation as an alternative to education, that that would be enough validation to say someone could go to this, it's not a university, it's a completely independent education system. And um, people that go through it to have as much, if not more, gravitas than people going through the university system. And so, yeah, I feel like... Obviously, I'm probably massively oversimplifying it, but I feel like it's definitely an attainable goal to go at the education. Level. I think this is another tilt for you at your legacy. Yeah, maybe. You could be that. You talk about <laughs> glue. You could be the glue or the magnet that brings these. Well, it's interesting. We mentioned Seth Godin. I mean, he's doing. He's got the alt MBA, and he's kind of leveraging the fact that he himself has got so much of a reputation to kind of still got to pay for that alt MBA or not. Uh, I believe. There's some. I, I'm not sure the exact. Uh, I'm not sure how it works. I'm but, sort of naive. Prov- provocateurs are naive, aren't they? And foolhardy. So I want it all to be free, but they say, of course, it can. It's never free. Nothing is never free. Yeah, the price it. must be paid somewhere by somebody. Yeah, as well, long as it's not in your patch. Well, interestingly, like uh, say for example, there's the whole idea of instead of spending thirty thousand pounds on education, what if you had uh, three years? where every year you started a new idea and you had £10,000 to get it off the ground. Arguably, anyone that went through that would, would learn more in that time about how to operate in the real world than education. What if universities allowed people to do so and then took a tiny tiny fraction of percentage of all the companies that went through the, through the thing and the money that people are spending is their own money? They're not going into debt. Mm. I'm... I'm coming up brainstorming on the spot here. I'm supposed to be doing there. <laughs> We're working something. Now, of course, back in the day, again, a long time ago, in my education, when I was at university, I can remember the time, one of only two occasions, if we're going to have that provocative thing, where I've ever been carted off by the old bill, yeah. was at a protest where the at the time, I think it was Sir Keith Joseph, who was the Secretary of State of Education, had come to the uh, establishment to talk to the young Tories, right, S- uh, about a possi- about the possibility, this is like the day where there were grants and you've got paid to go to university and learn about that they might take it away and it was like, this can't be true, this will never happen. And because I was a sort of young, a young Tyro who wanted to put the world through it, I lobbed an egg at him, right? <laughs> I actually missed and struck a policeman. Oh, wow, that's brilliant. <laughs> and even then, even as I was being carted off and, and afterwards it was, look, got a slap on the wrist or whatever, you thought... They'll never, they'll never take grants away, will they? Who would be so inhumane and uncivilised? That will never happen. But it just goes to show, doesn't it, the speed at which things can transform. 
good and bad, really. Yeah, 100%. Um, you, you mentioned very, very briefly there, we're, like, we're almost coming to a close, on at least on questions, unless there's more stuff you'd like to uh, touch upon. But you've... We've, I've referenced you as a cultural provocateur throughout all of this, but what's interesting is you're a bit of a rule breaker, really, in that, like, I even like the fact that your LinkedIn profile is you wearing a pair of futuristic purple shades. Like, it... it Just not right for a man of my age. Yeah, I was kind of half hoping I was going to walk into the pub and find some cyberpunk, like, <laughs> kind of strange guy. It's all, it's all, it's all layers, isn't it? It's yeah, layers. mystical. Miscall. That would have been quite nice, like a Noel Fielding character I'd have been, yeah. wouldn't I, sat there. Exactly, Hi, yeah. Hi, Ricky. But I'm just interested, you know, are there certain rules that you... Or what are your rules for rule-breaking, if that makes sense? Like, do, what, what things do you think hold people back in their creative pursuit? Is it confidence? Is it... Like, it seems to me like you have taken the whole idea of almost embracing just like wild ideas and and never never getting I don't want to say never getting old that's a bit of a cliche isn't it but it's just and so undignified so undignified yeah I apologize but it's just (laughs) some something something's driving you and it seems like you're still as enthusiastic today as you've ever been what do you think the secret source is there uh well everyone's going to be different because it's what they're exposed to isn't it I would say personally where does my sort of rebellious nature come from? Is it to do with some sort of family trauma? Definitely not. I think it's to do, actually, it was discovering when I was of a certain age, at a certain time, the intersection of me and punk rock, believe it or not, is the thing. It was such a shock to my system that, you know, I thought the world of... I, I, I was kind of always fascinated with music long before I got into advertising and writing. And... I thought music was one thing until the day when I think it was I think it was my sister gave me a, a Strangler single and I put it on and it was like I'd heard nothing like it and suddenly it was like it's a new it's a door isn't it you walk through you didn't know that door even existed in your house and so in that funny sort of way that sort of carried on where that comes into sort of agency world again I can only speak for the people and the places I, I've kind of worked with um, obviously you observe lots of other places I'm quite fascinated. Ricky, actually, I was talking to him about this the other day, which I think I'm prepared to say is still in the same territory. It's the idea of, you know, we send about 95% of stuff is crap, but the actual stuff that is brilliant that you see, right? The advert on television, the print ad, the kind of piece of content, the piece of technology that's turned into... I'm really fascinated in understanding how those really brilliant things get made not in front of the creative that come up how does somebody take it on the journey of here's the seed of the idea and like all this believe it or not i have had one or two that have been all right um and i know the struggle of getting to it getting to the final end point has always been i'm gonna have to i haven't sworn i've been very well behaved in this uh podcast but it's been a bit of a fucking struggle right for most of them there's never been a seamless journey of like frictionless frictionlessly transported from origination to end point to in the marketplace to champion to award show all that <laughs> never happened completely anybody thinks like that fiction isn't it right to the point i'd say all my best ideas and all the ideas of probably the people i've worked with collaborated with i think all our best ideas have never made it have never been created right because of just other people, it's, I call it 
I think I might tweet this about data. Kids had this notion of a great filter. And it's the filter of people stopping ideas for or a whole bunch of reasons. I'm always, I love to know how people, you know, you see something that wins at Cannes or wins at wherever. How did they actually get? I'm more interested in the process of the end. How did they get there? How did they get back past the bloody, you know, the Death Star as um, <laughs> someone? How did they get that? Yeah. How did they get past people to? And that's to me, that's the the fascinating thing. I think you know, as a, it's quite interesting. As I've taken myself out into uh, freelance world, I was talking to someone about this. Whether it's freelance as a writer or as a sort of script writer or as a creative AI, whatever it is, the creative I'd be interested in because that's kind of new and exciting, and people don't really know what it is. So you are being a little bit leading them, you're guiding them. Be interested in the freelance on the notion that when freelancers work in agencies, they tend to get they never they don't do the you don't get the freelancing to do the... We've got the plum jobs, do you? You get the freelancing to do the problem jobs. Yeah. And that would be interesting because quite often, again... And I'll interrupt you there. Unless you unless you position yourself really, really effectively, uh, to your point about the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, there's the good and the, the bad. Like, most freelancers go in and do that shit stuff. And then a tiny fraction kind of position themselves extremely well and go in as the guy that executes on the good stuff. But don't you think, don't you think, right, well, it's my view, that I don't necessarily concur that there is in an agency a bunch of briefs that are shiny briefs and shitty briefs, right? I think all briefs potentially have the same potential, potentially potential. They all have the ability to be as brilliant as the next one it's the spark you put into it that creates it, you know? I can think of something, you know, years ago that we did um, with Tourism Island. We ended up winning a few gongs at the DMAs and Travel Awards, whatever. But the original brief was highly, un- it was highly unpromising. It, was, it started off like an email brief that became a social media campaign. And it became a social media campaign where you said, actually, what you've got here can be exploited. It was the ability to think about it in a much bigger more sort of dramatic way rather than just thinking okay that's what they want me to do so that's the path i will pursue and then to that's where your your other point has a lot of pre- uh, prominence there because there's the whole thing about you know can you lead a whatever to water but any brief does have the potential to be great can you convince people that doing something great is is the answer if you know what i mean and and to the whole point about people saying that, oh, you know, good enough's good enough. For a lot of people that want to push the bounds, oftentimes they, they're getting watered down. And that's why... So this is a point I always make to young creatives coming into the industry. I always say, if you feel like you're being inhibited in that way and you've got a lot of hunger to do creative stuff, do stuff on your own as well because it's the only place where you, have, you haven't got multiple layers of people to answer to. You've given that. Are you giving that chance? Do that. That famous Ogilvy quote, isn't it? About in all the parks, in all the cities, there are no statues of committees, right? That's yeah. the point. Uh, that thing. Oh, doesn't it drive you nuts in an agency when you get the old right? We'll do three. We'll give them three ideas. We'll give them three ideas. We'll give one as kind of what they want, right? Then we'll push it a little bit, and then we'll go right over here. How many times have you heard that cliche? I would say, why don't we have three ideas? 
they start with the one that's over here by Pluto. Then we'll go to the far reaches <laughs> of the uh, Milky Way. And then we'll actually go into deep space. Some we don't even know it even exists yet. Why don't we do three ideas? Like, oh, I don't think they'd like that. And it's like, well, you don't know what they want until they... That there is a, a, a natural human propensity. We start with humans, didn't we come with this thing where you, people want to sort of, you know, regress to the mean. All humans like things to be different, but only a fraction different from what they're used to. And to me, that's why advertising and marketing is so homogenous. It's the same because everybody kind of reverts to the same. I saw a really good talk in um, South by Southwest this year, although I had a terrible South by Southwest due to food poisoning, but that's another story for another day, <laughs> right? And it was a guy who did a talk about uh, film posters, typography on film posters. I will give you the link because I think it's on YouTube somewhere. And it's brilliant. And it just shows how one person started with a particular font. I can't remember what the f- You're a font man, aren't you? Yeah. One particular font. And it became, because the film became successful, then all the films started copying that font. And then this particular film company did another film and they changed the font and that became successful. So they all came following that font. And then, blow me down, the bloody Oscar ceremony itself started copying that font. <laughs> so it became the whole sort of advertising of movie posters became essentially the same. Yeah, this I've thought about this before because when you go like, oh, horror, it's uh, red, it's blood, yeah. it's this, it's that. All of those conventions have been established at some point. I mean... Okay, horrors maybe a there's a there's a reason why those ones exist, but like you might go eco green. Why mm. is eco green? But it's like you know, I suppose it's grass, it's natural stuff. But it's like you know all of these the, they're really arbitrary, thing like con- uh, links and connotations that have kind of become like come about through the early people in that space in a way. Um, I, I just wanted to mention because you talked about getting ideas through and I. You sound to me like a, the the creative director ECD I've always wanted, but uh, in the past I've had some that have been quite keen on um, kind of watering it down. And one technique I used to always use when I first started out was I would... There would typically be an intermediary between myself and the, per, the decision maker. Yeah. And so I would... When I was told some of my ideas were too crazy, I'd always keep them. And I'd put them at the back of my pile. And then when we'd go into our review session, I'd lay out the ones I'd been told I had to do. And then my secret ones I was really proud of, when it got to the point, I would be, I'd just like kind of put my papers down. And inevitably, the ECD would always go, what's on that bit of paper there? And so you'd get to like, oh, well, this, oh, this is something. This is just something that's died already. You know, like it's been told, yeah, let's have a look, let's have a look. And you'd put it out. And then hopefully that person has a little bit more vision. Um and so I'd, I remember on a few occasions I'd get ideas through by being a little bit sneaky like that. And I think when you're a creative person, the the whole thing is like how do you drive ideas into completion and, and actual ma- actually make stuff. And so I think there's that's a massive point that, you, that you've made there, which is like I still I've, I still don't have answers to be yeah. honest. I'm still on that journey of working out of, if that could be my legacy, because working out of, a friction free way of getting a really crazy idea delivered very without any grief whatsoever. Like I, there is no idea is too crazy, but there's plenty of people who are too boring. That would be my. So I've got I think an, a, a kind of an answer, but it's not at all the answer that you would expect. I don't think. So it's like this is. Most people are in the system of doing whatever they're doing. 
So you you don't you uh, and so for example, working in advertising. Yeah. So you take yourself away from it a little bit. You package yourself in some way that allows you to elevate above the crowd. Yeah. That affords you better opportunities. Yeah. Which allows you to earn a little bit more money. Yeah. Which allows you to create things in your own time, which help to elevate you again, which then allow you opens you up to like a different echelon, that then allows you to at that point have enough disposable income to do some really really radical stuff. And I know that that's a super long winded process that is like ten years of planning to get to the point where you can do stuff for yourself, but. It seems to me like that's like one way of kind of sneaking your way up. That like uh, up is the wrong word, but assuming that the end goal is to be able to create things freely and you want artistic freedom. That's artistic what freedom, yeah. And I think the one thing that is true, and this is something that my good friend Ed always talks about, is that to to be known in a way is just to be different. And if you're in the creative discipline and you claim that you're really good at being different, you the first thing you should be able to do is to differentiate yourself. And then that is like the first step on the ladder to, to allowing you to getting yourself to that creative freedom. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I would just encourage people, any young, young people listening to this that are kind of on that pursuit to think about it that way. Cause I just, uh, Dan Samiri, yeah. you may have just discovered that book you were talking about. Earlier. Oh, well, <laughs> and maybe a speaking tour. <laughs> maybe, maybe who knows? Um, Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've got a few quick-fire questions for you, Go and for then uh, Adam's going to come in and share some insights from today's episode. Okay. So first quick-fire question is an event you highly recommend people see. Uh, oh, dear. It's not blatant self-promotion. I would recommend if you uh, the uh, London environment, the London environment, I would go to try and go to... Uh, I'll be back, hosted by Tom Ollerton and Alex Hobhouse. Not sure you're getting to September's. It's basically the... It's a once-a-month event um, which uh, celebrates the intersection of creativity, AI and advertising. Um, it moves around town from agency to media place to all sorts of places. Every I think it's it's meant to be the last Thursday of the month. There's one on September 26th, which probably isn't a Thursday, but then there'll be one in October and November, December... Um, excitingly, uh, I've exported it to the southwest. You might come along, Ricky, if you're in Bristol. I may well do. In that way, on the 6th of September. Uh, and exactly the same formula. It's going to be once a month, probably the first Thursday of the month, because you couldn't have it at the, sec- the end Thursday, because then there'd be all sorts of clashes, wouldn't there? It would indeed. Um, and what's great about it is you get four completely different people come along from different sort of segments of that AI community, uh, whether they're startups or their brands or their agencies, and they give a viewpoint. And not all viewpoints agree. It's not all just a sort of cheering shot for a creative artificial intelligence. Sometimes there's some quite contentious things. But it's done in an era of conviviality and sort of welcomeness, and everybody goes on afterwards to the pub, and it's just a really good, nice... And, where and it's can, free. Where can people find that? Um, if I were to say to you, go online, probably look up, um, I'll be back, AI or creative AI on, on the Google It'll pop up. September's a pop up. Just get on the waiting list and then you'll be on the mailing list and you can get on it either way or you can put Southwest. Easy to find. And the second is a creative hero or someone people should check out. Um, Not necessarily. I I, I thought about this. I'd fire maybe three names, right? I won't go into great detail who they are because people can look them up. They're people who have definitely had an influence on me. Um... 
But they're not advertising people. I thought about that. Could I bring advertising people? Who are the writers? I thought, well, when you start celebrating advertising writers, that becomes a bit esoteric to me, a bit arcane. Um, I would say people writing, straight off the bat, the person who, who made me realise that you could be creative with writing, which is something I hadn't really thought about, uh, was William Burroughs. Right? You know, familiar with William no. Burroughs? William Burroughs was a sort of beat writer of the... 40s, 50s, 60s, came from a wealthy background, was a very troubled man, uh, shot his wife dead while he was trying to shoot an apple off her head. Can't recommend that as a strategy, really. <laughs> uh, drug problems and that. Came up with all sorts of very fascinating, interesting ways of writing. Very, very influential kind of cut-up writing where you basically write something, kind of just stream of consciousness. You then cut it up into bits of paper, put it back together, and that's what you write. Ultimately, that influenced people like Bowie, Kurt Cobain. I think even did some recordings with William Burroughs. He's one because, again, it was like a door. Someone gave me one of his books, probably in my first job, and said, have you ever read this guy? And read it, and it was like, I didn't know you could do that with words. That was interesting. Um, Cindy Sherman, photographer, is someone who I'd, I've got a lot of time for. I don't read really tons about photography, but the fact she had his entire career, where she created all these amazing images, and she features in all of them, it's just funny. I yeah. don't. I don't know if it's meant to be funny. It just makes me laugh that yeah. she's always features in her own art all the way through a, a long distinguished life. Uh, musically, someone who's meant a lot to me. I would say the last artist who I've been very serious about musically. Say, well, you're an old duffer, aren't you? Say so you don't know about the modern <laughs> music, but, but someone who I would truly loved what they said. I read an article about them the other day. They equated their lyrics to that of Bob Dylan, because Bob Dylan obviously won a Nobel Literature Prize and all that. And they said, I think it might have been The Guardian, said, this guy's lyrics was good. I have a bias went, yeah, I think you're right. There's a guy called Elliot Smith. Are you familiar with Elliot Smith? I'm not a Ricky? music man Elliot, myself. Yeah, Elliot Smith was a uh, musician from the sort of west coast of Australia. Um, of America up near sort of Portland sort of way. It was in a band called Heat Miser, went solo, got a really weird bit of fame when he provided songs for Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting wasn't going to be a massive film. It became a massive film. He sort of ended up performing at the Oscars that year. One of the songs got nominated, had a four or five album career after that, ended up, again, depression, drugs, all that sort of classic... I'm not saying it's a good thing necessarily, but it all adds to music canon um, and it informed what the music was. Ends up by killing himself in a, a row with his um, girlfriend. Sort of tragic, taken sort of 32, something like that. Again, that is somebody, I think, in terms of like creating an art form that is emotionally compelling, I don't think there's... I personally don't think there's anybody in the history of popular music who has probably captured the f feelings of despair and just anxiety and angst and pain better than him. Bit of a doubt. I'm talk talking quite upbeat <laughs> way about it. But allied to my beautiful melodies. Yeah. You can't beat a so you can whistle, even if it's got angst, <laughs> an angsty lyrical edge to it. I would investigate. You can't... It's funny how, isn't it, when people are sad, they, they like to listen to sad songs. It's an odd trait to my mind but that's what you do isn't it when you feel sad you like to listen to a sad song when you feel happy well they certainly they maybe they just catch you more if you know what i mean but yes i agree so that would be my three william burroughs cindy sherman Elliot Smith. they've all had a big part no doubt in creatively pushing me in a direction lovely stuff
So uh, before I ask you the final, final, final question and where people can get hold of you, I'm going to pass the show over to our producer, Adam, who's going to share a few insights from today's episode. Well, thanks for joining us on your first ever podcast, Richard, and on your birthday too. Here's just five of the insights I wrote down as you were talking. Number one, being self-employed means not having to worry about who you work for. You network with a way more diverse group of people. It can help you stand out from the crowd with your creativity and it can plant seeds that build a legacy years later. Number two, anyone can be creative. But Sturgeon's Law says 90% of sci-fi is crap because 90% of everything is crap. There will, however, always be room for those who do it better than others. Number three, there are no good briefs and bad briefs. It's all about the spark you put into it. Number four, Look for Eve Peters' South by Southwest talk, The Secret Language of Movie Posters. It's a great example of the growth of homogeneity. And number five, try to get into Tom Ollerton and Alex Hobhouse's I'll Be Back event, celebrating the intersection of creativity, AI and advertising. It's on every month and it's free. Thank you, Adam, for those uh, wealth of insights. I'm sure uh, there's lots of stuff there for people to take away. So before we end the show, Rich, do people call you Rich or Richard? Not very often. They call me Noughts. Noughts. Ah. So before you go, Noughts, yeah. how can people get hold of you? Um, where can people find you on the interwebs? And then I'll ask you the final, final, final question. Uh, the best place would be, funny enough, in my new guise, I managed to purloin the uh, very, uh, very punchy URL of noughts.co.uk. There we go. Rather remarkably. Um and so, yeah, if, if I was a starting point, I'd go to noughts, N-O-R-T-S dot co dot UK. You'll also find me, I'll be back southwest, kind of comparing it as a fully-fledged technology oaf. Oh, actually, and I've noticed you're quite the prolific tweeter. Well, yes. Nearly 40,000 tweets. That's... Uh, is that... I don't... It's 40,000. I don't know. I'm I don't, not sure it is these days. Is it not? I don't know. I think I've got like 400, but... Um, yeah, that's fairly... You know, but there might be... I might have... I might have nothing. It might be a bit vacuous. No, I went on there. It was quite quite entertaining read. So maybe find you on uh, what's your what's your Twitter handle? Oh, uh, it's a bit. Oh, it's, it's it's actually it's not the easiest one to find. Oh God, yes, of course, it's upside it's, down. It's no, well, it's my actual Twitter handle is Eric Bratislava. Right, right? <laughs> Eric, just a f- simple four letter name. Yeah. Bratislava, the capital city of Slovakia. Yeah. Only because when I used to be a I used to busk. Uh, and when you bust it, we needed a name. And then I started getting gigs in certain bars, and I wanted to be like an Elvis Costello sort of character. And I just <laughs> thought, Elvis Costello, what could you be? Oh, Eric Bratislava sort of sounds right. And I just stuck with it. And then Twitter came out about the same time. I wish I hadn't. Jason. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's really good. I wish I hadn't. But it's what, yeah, Eric Bratislava, you'll find me tweeting vacuous sort of nonsense now and then. Some of them are actually, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's interesting. I, I admire the, the disciplined tweeter, again, who has the focus of my tweets are this and I will never deviate from that path. Whereas, again, the, the chaos just, who knows? It could be about anything, eclectic. There we go. If you if you like diverse topics of conversation, for, follow Eric Blattis, Bratislava. Not so you can't even say it. I know, I know. It's an impossibility. And uh, here's uh, the tweet of the day. So final, final, final question: a piece of advice to help people live a better and more meaningful life. That's what I ask every guest. Uh, 
One for me, if I actually practically apply something I've done myself, I'll make it a quick answer rather than how I got there, I think is to, uh, it's two things in one sentence. I think it's to live fearlessly, right? It's by that I mean, if anybody says you can't do something, tell them to get knotted, if it's really what you want to do. Uh, and also at all times, try and be as nice as possible to everybody because it don't cost, does it? Agreed. I think it's wonderful advice. Nort, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. For, it's been an honour. An right. honour. And uh, we'll leave by saying happy birthday. I hope it's been a good one. Well, all I say is my birthday wish is to have another birthday. There we go. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me Mailing List. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>